Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Kingdom Come, based out of our study on the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. For more information about this sermon and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. St. Augustine loved the story of an early church martyr named Perpetua. She was martyred in the year 203, so, you know, pretty early. Um, she was a young, affluent girl. She came from a, a wealthy family. Um, she had a newborn, um, but she was going through uh, kind of a sort of a catechism. So, and and she's from North Africa. Um, so, in in their time, you you went through about a year, sometimes even two years of classes before you got baptized. And and, and a lot of churches still do stuff like that. So, she was in this period of going through a catechism. She's learning doctrine and she's preparing for her baptism. When um, the Emperor Septimus Severus decided that he was going to persecute Christians in North Africa. And he set his sights particularly on this group of young people who were um, going through the catechism. They were, offer, they, were, they were asking Perpetua and her friends just to offer a sacrifice um, to, to Caesar, to declare Caesar as a god. And if they would offer a sacrifice, then they would um, not have any charges pressed against them. Perpetua's father pleaded with her on multiple occasions to abandon her faith. Her first response, um, she recorded in a diary. She kept a diary while she was in jail. And so this is um, what she recorded in her diary, the conversation with, she had with her dad while she was waiting for her um, execution. She said her, her dad's begging her, just renounce Jesus. Just renounce. Say you're not a Christian. He's, he's saying, he's, he's saying, consider me this gray haired man. And at one point he brings her newborn to her in jail and allows, she's allowed to breastfeed her newborn. And he's saying, remember you're a newborn. Just abandon your Christianity. Just abandon your faith. And this is what Perpetua said to her father that she recorded in her journal. She said, father, do you see this vase here? She replied, could it be called anything other than the name than what it is? No, he replied. Well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. The day that she was going to be exiled, she was brought before the governor along with her friends, and her father came in before the governor with her newborn. And he begged her again, reject your Christianity. Consider me. Consider your baby. Reject your Christianity. And the governor seemed to like empathize with the father and to feel the pain. And he urged Perpetua, have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. And she simply replied, I will not. Are you a Christian then? Asked the governor. Yes, I am, she replied. Her father begged again. And the governor became frustrated with the father's pleading and he had the father beaten until he would be silent. The story goes that they brought her in the Colosseum with her friends. And uh, church history gets a little skewed here. Some say that lions came out, but most say that um, a bull came out and knocked her down. This is in all of the records that when she was knocked down, um, her clothes got messed up. And so she fixes herself quick to try to modestly cover herself. And then... Um, her hair had fallen. And for your hair to fall in the day, that was a sign that you were mourning. When it, You remember this from the scriptures. Women will let their hair down when they mourn. And her hair falls, consider in the Colosseum in front of thousands of people. Her hair falls and she looks at one of her friends and she says, give me a hairpin. And she stops 
And she pulls her hair back up because she didn't want to be seen as mourning in this moment. She didn't want to be seen as, as regretting her decision, but she wanted to be known that she, with confidence and with boldness, would face her death for the sake of Jesus. So she pulls her hair back, and they let some stories say that at this point a leopard comes out, but they let some other animals out, and the animals don't kill her. And so a soldier comes and puts a sword to her throat to end her life. And the record says that the soldier was so nervous that the sword was shaking and that she reached out and she grabbed the blade and she steadied it to her neck and allowed him to to cut her throat and end her life. I've always loved this story. I love the imagery of her picking herself up and getting a hairpin and tying her hair back with his confidence. But these situations are tough, man. This is a hard family scenario. And so as I studied this week, for some reason, this story was running through my head. And I thought about her father begging her, just keep the peace. Just denounce Jesus and keep peace here. We can continue with our family life. If you just quit, if you just stop with your Christianity, just keep the peace. And I I thought about that. And then as I kind of meditated on this situation, I realized that... um, that that perpetuous stance was that this is not peace at all. That she was not the one who was creating, that that she was not the one perpetuating violence, that she was not the one standing strong and saying, you're going to be murdered if you don't reject your religion. She, She was saying, there is no peace. He was saying, just keep peace. And she was saying, my life without Jesus is not peace. You're not offering me peace. And I, and I thought that the, about the governor begging her, just, just honor your father's great head and just renounce Jesus. And then I thought, why isn't the father arguing against this? Why isn't he saying, no, this is not peace? The governor could have kept the peace. He could have not sent her to the Colosseum. He could have kept the peace. No, she with passionate conviction is fighting for peace. She is fighting for true peace and true Harmony, but she's saying that, that I won't settle for less than that. And so as I studied our passage this morning, I realized that, um, that we're not necessarily called to be solely peacekeepers. We're called to be peacemakers. He's going to call us this week to be peacemakers. And so it would have been easy for her to renounce Jesus and settle into her comfort and call that peace. But it's not real peace. It's not real liberty. It's not real freedom. And it's not real worship. And so she says, no, I will fight for, I will sacrifice my life to expose the fact that this isn't life at all without Jesus. You're not called to be peacekeepers. You're called to be peacemakers who proactively work to bring peace where it does not exist. It's not keeping the peace to allow the government to murder huge crowds of Christians. The government was was operating with fear and intimidation. And what she was saying is, no, you won't intimidate me. Her putting that pen back in her hair was saying, I won't be crippled by fear. Her getting up and pulling the blade to her throat, she's saying, no, intimidation doesn't work here. This is not peace. This is not justice, and I won't settle for it. I thought this week about Dr. King saying that the ultimate tragedy is not the oppression and cruelty by bad people, but the silence over that by the good people. 
He said, the hottest place in hell is reserved for those who remain neutral in times of great moral conflict. I don't know if you can justify that scripturally, but I laughed when I read it. The hottest place in hell is reserved for those who remain neutral in times of great moral conflict. Not peacekeepers, not in the sense that we cringe at the thought of conflict and worship our own comfort. We're peacemakers. We bring peace to places that it's not known. So here's our passage this morning from Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Hear it again. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic, The Cost of Discipleship, says this. The followers of Jesus have been called to peace. When he called them, they found their peace, for he himself is their peace. But now they are told that they must not only have peace, but they must make it. Now you're told that you can't only have peace, but you have to make it. So this morning, I want to kind of systematically try to understand all the nuances of this. And I won't be long, but I pray that you're challenged as we read and as we study. So the first thing to ask is, by the statement, by peacemaker, does Jesus primarily mean those who will end violence? Is he primarily making a statement against violence? Or is he saying that peacemakers will fight for people to be reconciled with God because there is a dissension between man and God. So peacemakers have to be people who preach the gospel in order to bring peace between man and God. Or does he mean merely that peacemakers fight for social harmony? Does he mean that these people will fight for relational harmony in our communities? Commentator Craig Blumberg says that peacemakers ultimately work for shalom. Wholeness, harmony in all aspects of life. The HarperCollins Dictionary says that the concept of shalom is described as the ideal human state, both individual and communal, the ultimate gift from God. And so peacemakers has to be held in, in hand in hand with the biblical idea of shalom, with the idea of the ideal human state, perfect peace, that peacemakers love the culture of heaven. Peacemakers are in love with the perfect peace of heaven, and they are advancing a new kingdom that grabs that peace, that's filled with the peace of Christ in them, and then they are making that peace in the earth. So again, we're praying for the peace of Eden, the peace that Adam and Eve walked away from. We are longing for that kind of peace to fill the earth again. So yes, we don't like violence. Yes, we work for peace between man and God. And yes, we work for relational harmony. So the first thing that I want to say is that as far as I can understand the scriptures, peacemakers do hate violence. Now, that doesn't mean that scripturally, that the scriptures demand that you're a strict pacifist. I think that scripturally you can make a case for violence in certain instances. That's my position, at least. I think we see God's hand on David as he engages in war against his enemies. I think you would even say that he was anointed in battle. But when David goes to create the house of the Lord, remember he says, I have this vision to build a temple for the Lord. Do you remember why God tells David that he's not to build the house? Because he shed too much blood. So God in one sense anoints David even in the battle, but in another sense says your hands won't build the house because of the blood that's been shed. So battle is necessary at at times, but it's never celebrated. 
violence in my position, violence can be necessary, but never celebrated and never first choice, never the go-to response. We've talked at times this past month about Jesus' commission to turn the other cheek. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, you turn to him your left. And I think we ought to obey that command. I think we ought to let that thing really seep down into our hearts. But someone striking me on the cheek to belittle me or to demean me or to embarrass me is not the same thing as someone trying to grab my daughter when we're out for a walk. Do you understand the nuance there? Believers have to be able to, in wisdom and discernment, differentiate between you're trying to harm my family and it's my responsibility to protect or you're trying to belittle me. So yes, we're against violence. Yes, strike me on the right cheek and I'll turn to you, your left. But I don't simply allow someone to snatch my daughter and go, I'm against violence. I kick them where the sun don't shine. You know what I'm saying? Glenn, Glenn Sasson was a, um, an ethicist at, at Fuller. He taught ethics for years at Fuller. Um, I think he died in 2012. Um, he had an initiative, what he, what he called just the just peace initiative. And so he said, as an ethicist, he said that every Christian has to answer the question, can violence ever be justified? Can war ever be justified? And he said, pacifists answer the question strictly no, violence is never justified. Most Christians fall in what's called just war theory, meaning that violence and war in particular can be justified if certain criteria is met. And so it's a long list of criteria that has to be met before war is justified. And, and to just war theorists, violence is never first response. He said the problem when Christians solely cling to this idea of just war, I know this is an intellectual thought here, is that when we start to only ask the question is, is violence justified? Can we respond in violence? If that's the only question you ask, you never ask the question, how can peace be made? And, and so he, for instance, critiqued um, some other Christian ethicists as they, when Bush declared war on terrorism, um, there were a lot of Christian ethicists who wrote books justifying the war on terrorism. And, and, I, and not that you care about my personal opinion, but I, but I think war could have been justified in that moment. But Glenn um, Stassen critiqued the other ethicists because they only talked about whether or not war was justified, and they never talked about how peace could be made in the future. So he said that rather than just talking about is war justified in this moment, why are we not talking about how to hinder young men in the future from being sucked into these terrorist organizations? So you're only talking about whether or not we should fight terrorists, but you're not talking about how we could end the fact that young teenage boys are being drafted into this evil. And he said by only talking about the fact that we are going to continually wage war on terrorists, you are committing yourself to violent acts against 15 or 16 year old boys who today have nothing to do with terrorism because as this war continues those terrorist organizations are only going to try to draft in these young guys who have no dog in the fight today so he said if you if we're going to go to fight that's one thing that that's a different conversation but we should also be peacemakers who are trying to Stop young men from being drafted into this war. We don't want to commit ourselves to battling some 14, 15 year old kid who doesn't know anything about what's going on today. Peacemakers not only talk about whether or not violence is justified, but they talk about how can we stop violence in the future.
in the early 2000s, um, I guess it wasn't early 2000s, it was, I think the year 2008 or 2009, um, Obama was getting ready to drop bombs on Syria for, um, do you remember they had those poison gas weapons? You guys remember this? Um, and Stassen wrote an article in which he suggested a plan to, to maybe, he said that it probably wouldn't work, but maybe if we tried, um, entering into this kind of conversation with Syria, if we kind of gave them a warning, gave them some options out, maybe Syria would just decide to get rid of their bombs. He said they probably won't, but maybe they will. And, uh, mysteriously, Stassen's, Stassen's, um, blog goes viral, um, all over the internet. And mysteriously, John Kerry had the exact same proposition the next week. Um, kind of worked, kind of didn't work. That's a different question. But the Christian should be leading in how do we make peace? How do we promote peace? How do we live for future peace? Craig Keener mentions that, that Jesus may be speaking to violent Jewish zealots in this moment. He's saying, because many Jewish zealots in the day thought that we see this in Masada. Do you guys, have you ever heard the story of Masada? I'm going to take time to tell it today. We see Jews um, thinking that the way that they're going to get peace is they're going to violently resist Roman oppression and violence is going to be the avenue in which we bring peace. So maybe Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom doesn't come through violence, but the kingdom is going to come through peacemakers, people who take initiative to make peace, who bring peace with God through the preaching of the gospel and work for social peace and harmony through the gospel. Now I've addressed the ways in which that text could speak to our position on violence. Whether you believe violence is ever a justified option or not, it's never celebrated scripturally, and and peace ultimately is the highest value. But there we do stumble into another idea that's rather important for you to grip this morning, and is that it's it's this that that peacemaking is not passive. It's not a passive trait. Peacemakers are 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 actively engaged in resolving conflict. Peacemaking is not for the weak of heart. Peacemaking takes courage, boldness, conviction. Matthew 5, 23, Jesus says this, If you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. I'd like to just offer the gift. Most of us in the room today don't like conflict. That takes courage and boldness to go get in somebody's face and look them in the eye and try to resolve conflict. That's not the easy way out. The temptation in life is to hide all of our issues and all of our conflicts under our spiritual rug and then trip over them the rest of your life. Only to find yourself embittered and cold. When offended, peacekeepers, and I'm using that word to mean people who do passively respond, peacekeepers just kind of ignore the person for a couple weeks. Maybe I won't get in the room with them again. And they kind of keep distance just long enough that the sting of bitterness has gone away, and you can settle that just long enough that I can fake a smile every now and then. Peacekeepers are watching with one eye in worship to see if that hypocrite's really lifting their hands. That's what I do to my wife. I know you're not worth just kidding. That's a joke. 
Peacemakers pick up the phone and dial somebody's phone number and engage in awkward conversation. Peacemakers stop to someone in the hallway and in humility say, I'm so sorry. I don't know if I misinterpreted you, but I got offended with this. And with peacemakers understand things like you watch your tone of voice. Peacemakers understand things like body language matters when you're having awkward conversations. Peacemakers always assume the best of the other party. They always wear the, I may have misinterpreted. Peacemakers are honest. They go to other people and say, hey, I think I may have offended you and I spoke out of line. Or I was in my flesh in that moment and I was wrong. Peacemakers are, are not afraid to repent, to ask for forgiveness. Peacekeepers relive the offense, waiting for moments to talk about it again. But we're Christians, so we wait till not many people are around. Peacemakers pick up the phone, awkward conversations. Jesus says, leave your gift. Don't, don't come to worship. Don't, don't bring me a gift for the altar. Leave it there. Go be reconciled, then come back. We talked about John G. Lake this morning, and he had these convictions that he lived by, these kind of covenants that he made with himself. And one of the covenants was that he would be a peacemaker, trying to bring peace for himself and avoiding all unfruitful contentions. He said, if I should offend anyone knowingly, I will immediately apologize. I will not scatter evil reports. I will strive to remove remove the curse of strife among brethren by acting as a peacemaker. So in our personal relationships, we work to find unity where unity has been broken. Peacemakers say unity is broken here. I'm going to address it. Peacemakers don't acknowledge this unity and, and walk away and turn their head. Peacemakers say gossip can't live here. Peacemakers say slander has no place here. Peacemakers say we're going to be people of encouragement. We're going to be people of blessing. We're going to be people of life. We're going to be people who speak destiny and calling. Peacemakers say no, gossip, slander has no home here. Remember, you have to remember that our flesh has this tendency to want to justify. Every one of us, we possess flesh, a flesh nature, and every one of us, at times, our adrenaline gets pumping when controversy comes our way. You are going to have to intentionally submit your flesh to the gospel message. What does Paul mean when he says, I'm crucified with Christ? Dead to the world, dead to the world systems. But, listen to me, but you can't only care about peace in your personal relationships. That's still a slightly passive trait to say, I'm going to care about relational peace as long as I feel, anytime I feel uncomfortable, then I am going to actively engage and bring peace. That's the start, but that can't be the finish. It's selfish to only care about peace when it affects you. Do you remember... uh, Martin Niemöller, Niemöller, who was that German pastor who at first supported Hitler, supported the Nazi party. He saw Hitler as a strong leader, and slowly as time went on, he realized that he had made a mistake. And he said this in, in, a, in a poem. It's been translated different ways, so this is a certain translation I'm reading. He said this. He said, first they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. They came for communists. I didn't speak out because I wasn't a communist. They came for the trade unionist. I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. 
Then they came for me and there was no one left left to speak out for me. Then they came for me and no one was left. I think peacemakers of the 60s found themselves marching on Selma. We talked about Corey Ten Boom and her family in the late 30s, early 40s. Peacemakers risking their life to try to protect their Jewish neighbor. Peacemakers are not just concerned with, with relational harmony in their little cliques, but they're also concerned with shalom for their neighbor. We're about corporate, communal peace. Paul says if one member of the body suffers, then the whole body suffers. Learn to grieve where others grieve. Learn to mourn where others mourn. And I think if we're going to really love our community, our city, our nation well, then we kind of grab that principle and say the same thing. When one member of our community is oppressed, when one people group in our community suffers, then we suffer, then we engage, then we run to the conflict, we don't ignore it. I've told you before that I'm not one who loves political debate. But the wonderful thing about our country, about the United States of America, why I love it so much is that when there is injustice, you're allowed to say something. When when perfect peace is not settled, you have a constitutional right to use your vocal cords. And I'm not one who wants to get in all these political debates. I'm really not. But but when there is injustice, peacemakers look for peace. They're creative. They look for initiative. They learn to, to empathize and to feel for other people groups. At times, that means defending the oppressed. At times, that means financially giving to the poor. At times, that means fighting to maintain an opportunity for a quality education for every people group. What about the orphan in our community? What about the foster care system in our city? What's happening there? What about those children who are experiencing a lack of peace in their day-to-day life? And what are we doing to engage them in peace? How are we making peace in an area in our community where children suffer from day-to-day? How do we make peace there? Those are questions that peacemakers wrestle with. Peacemakers even assist those who find themselves in a mess that they made. It's easy. We talked about this when we talked about mercy. It's easy to say, you made the bed, now you're going to lay in it. But I love David Wilkerson. If you remember his book, The Cross and the Switchblade, I wonder, I love he spends his whole life making peace for young teenagers, adults who find themselves in drug addiction. David Wilkerson didn't put the drug in the needle and shoot it up their arm. But with compassion and empathy and conviction he steps into their day-to-day life and leads them to peace he makes peace in the lives of some incredible individuals throughout history you want to talk about the brownsville revival and the preaching anointing that was on the man steve hill you have to talk about the fact that he was a drug addict who teen challenge radically changed his life david wilkerson's initiative made peace in a young man's life who would preach the gospel with passion and fervency and see millions blessed by the gospel message made peace where there was disharmony in someone's life and then watched God use them. There's a guy today that I love to watch. He's kind of a goofy fellow. Named, his name's Todd White, who does all this evangelism and prays for people. Same story. The man was a drug addict. 
found themselves in a teen challenge setting, got filled with passion and calling and anointing, and he's changing the world. The man is literally changing the world, going everywhere, preaching the gospel. How do we make peace in people like that's life? Make peace in their life and then believe God to use them. Let peace multiply through the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Yet there's a side of this conversation that we've danced around that I want to just hit real quick before I bring this to a close. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. It's who he is. Yet peace requires two parties to come to an agreement. The idea of shalom biblically is often in relationship with the idea of covenant. Two parties have to participate in reconciliation. There may be times where I'm trying to, I'm working towards reconciliation with a family member and it's just not getting there. I keep offering, working to make peace and I can't, it's not going anywhere. So Ephesians 2.14, uh, Paul says of Jesus, He himself is our peace who made us both one, broke down the flesh and the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, he could reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, thereby killing hostility. Jesus kills hostility on our behalf. Hostility between us and God and hostility between us and man. But Jesus says of himself, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. What does he mean by this statement? I don't come to bring peace but a sword. He, he says, um, Brothers will reject brothers and fathers will reject sons and daughters will reject mothers. There will be relationships broken because of this gospel. Because peacemakers, this is where the, the, the tension that Perpetua found herself in. Peacemakers are living for true peace. And sometimes it's, it's fascinating to consider that this, this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, is sandwiched between two other beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So the peacemakers are pure in heart, they fight for holiness, and they will be persecuted. So they will suffer because of their message. And so again, peacemaking, Jesus, the, the, the peace that Jesus was bringing got him on a cross. Because he didn't just settle with religious leaders propagating some kind of system that actually dehumanizes people. He confronted it. And the peacemakers of church history, Perpetua being a good example, she didn't just settle and say, oh, the leadership says I can't love Jesus, that's okay. She confronted it. Peacemakers don't sit quietly as people are oppressed in, in, in order to avoid controversy. They don't cower Peter, you remember Peter says to the religious leaders in the early chapters of Acts, is it right for us to obey you or obey God? What is Peter saying? No, we won't. We won't bow. We are making true peace. We won't settle for this fake persecution, this oppression. Dr. King wrote a letter to his fellow clergymen from the Birmingham prison in 63, maybe, maybe the beginning of 64. Um, March at Selma, he goes to prison, um, writes the letter, and he mentioned this before. 
rails other pastors with all of his intelligence. He just unleashes his brilliance and rails with all of these arguments that are incredibly logical and historically supported. And I love it. It makes me like, I get chills when I read it because he's quoting Augustine and he's quoting Aquinas off head in prison. He's all of his intelligence. He's railing at clergymen. And one of the arguments that the fellow clergymen made was that what, what they were doing was agitating violence, that to peacefully march in their city was to agitate violence. And Dr. King's point was simply this, is that that is an illogical statement. To say that, 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 that our peaceful marches agitate violence, you could say that of Jesus, that Jesus agitated violence by preaching the gospel. Why did he end up on a cross? You could say that of the early church. They agitated violence, therefore they got stoned. He said that's, that's the most illogical thing you could say. We, we cannot be condemned for violence by advocating for peace. He said what our marches do expose who's violent. What we've done is expose violence. And he essentially says, shame on you for, for pointing your finger at us in your compromise and saying that we're violent people as we allow them to spray us down with water hoses and to punish our kids. Shame on you for... He said violence is a result of our protest, but it's because violent people want to silence us. Violent people don't want us to have peace. So Jesus teaches us the ways of making peace, telling us at times we may suffer violence for our resistance of the world's sin, but we are never to respond in violence. We suffer violence because of the world system, but we never respond in violence. Peacemaking is not passive. It's advocating for real righteousness, which may put you in situations from time to time where stones are slung your way. Putting yourself in violence way at time to time in order to advocate for peace. Then he says this, and I'll close with this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Because the son looks like his father. And then that day, the son's trade was what the father's trade was. If the father was a carpenter, Joseph, then the son would be a carpenter. The son learns his father's mannerisms. His sense of character. The son's values reflect the father's values. When you fight for peace, you live for peace, you actively work to bring it, you are following the pattern of Jesus. Reflecting the image of God. You look like God, church, when you reject bitterness and choose to love. You look like God, church, when you honor those who bring you dishonor. And you look like God when you love in the face of gossip, in the face of rejection, and in the face of hate. You look like God when you respond with love for all people in the face of hate. You look like God when you stand with boldness and conviction and you face evil without cowering back. That's real peacemaking. Again, Jesus' peacemaking initiative landed him on a cross. He was loved by the masses and hated by the masses. The peacemakers, those who really engage their community, who fight against oppression and who really care will be called sons of God they will reflect the image of the Father. 
So remember that shalom go and glory go hand in hand. God's perfect peace will fill the earth. God's perfect peace will fill the new kingdom. We are longing for perfect peace. Love it. Anticipate it. Live for it. Establish it. Don't settle for less than it. Work for it. Sometimes we have to find creative solutions to find peace, man. Sometimes we've got to learn to compromise and hear and listen and learn to have empathy even when you don't understand what someone's saying. You've got to, you've got to fight for it at times. I'm suggesting that we keep fighting for this community and we keep fighting for our community. And my dream, like my utter gut check dream, is that one day we will start to... That one day this community will start to be impacted by the gospel. That we'll move this city into an experience with God. That this, that people will get saved. That people will leave darkness and come into marvelous light. But when we bring them into peace with God, let's birth them into a community that's bathed in peace. Let's pray that people are discipled, raised up with real calling and purpose in a community of peace. But if we live as a people of disunity, we're only going to birth new Christians in a community of disunity. And what's the point of that? Let's, let's create an atmosphere, a house of peace where we can really raise up people to love, trust, and value peace. But to do that, you're going to have to be bold. To, be, to do that, you can't walk around and ignore controversy. You're going to have to pick up the phone from time to time and engage in awkward conversations. I hate it, but I have to do it. Because peace is more important than your comfort. You hear me? Peace in this house is more important than your temporary pleasure. Peace in this community is more important than you living by fear and anxiety. Be bold. Walk with conviction. And I'll close with reading to you from Psalm 133, verses 1 through 2. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down the collar of his robes. What is he saying? How pleasant it is when we dwell in unity. The anointing of God runs through that. The anointing, fragrant oil of God runs over the communities who dwell in unity. I think that's what we're after. I think that's what we're trying to do. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.